I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Hello and welcome back to the FT Arts Podcast. I'm Jan Daly, the FT's arts editor, and I'm delighted to be joined this week by Louis de Bernier, author most famously of Captain Corelli's Mandolin, as well as many other novels by the playwright Mike Packer and journalist Carl Wilkinson. We'll be discussing literary adaptations. Of the five nominees for Best Film at the BAFTAs, three were based on novels, and at the Oscars later this month, six of the nine movies up for Best Picture are adaptations. This year also sees a rich crop, including Anna Karenina, other classics, as well as many other modern novels, making it onto the big screen. Now, have they always been so popular? Or are filmmakers playing it safe in uncertain times? How do you go about writing an adaptation? And how does it feel to see your novel or play on the big screen? Louis, thank you for joining us. Your novel Red Dog, based on the true story of a dog who roamed Western Australia in the 1970s, was made into a film last year. It was a big hit at the Australian box office and opens in the UK this week. Is it a good adaptation? It's an exceptionally good adaptation. It, it, it's one of the few cases where the film really is, I think, better than the book. And I don't say that willingly. Um I wrote it originally for children, and so um, I suppose you could say the characterization wasn't all that um, developed in the book. But in the film, the, the film, the characters are much more well developed, and it, it's a it's a very lively, uh, joyful, and also sad film. I mean, my four year old daughter loved it, and I'm pretty, sh- and I loved it too. And I'm fifty seven, so <laughs> I really enjoyed it. Actually, did you? I did. I watched it over the weekend. I really enjoyed it. Was it developed by the director and, and the screenwriter? How much did, did you have to do with it, Louis? I had nothing to do with the script writing. Um, I was a bit miffed that they didn't ask me. But 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 uh, having said that, the, whoever the script writer was did a better job than I could. Perhaps you need that distance. I think you actually really needed to be an Australian. Ah, uh, yes, there that, is that's that. That's what I saw when, when I watched it. You really felt that it was made by Australians and the whole culture and the characters and... Um, that that really pinged out to me mm. that if you know the culture mm. of the people mm. that you're writing about and the places yeah. that uh, w- once you've got that on screen then it lives well it sounds to me as if the adaptation of red dog was a happier experience for you as a writer than the adaptation of captain corelli because i'm going to quote something that you said oh. a lovely thing in the a lunch with the ft interview a few years ago you said compared to a novel A film is like an economy pizza, where there are no olives, no ham, no anchovies, no mushrooms, and all you've got is the dough. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if you even remember saying that, or if you were accurately quoted, but perhaps Captain Corelli was not such a happy experience, was it? Um, It was a happy experience in many ways. Um, I I thought that there were some mistakes by the director. For example, one of the sad things about the book is that the couple don't become lovers until they're very old and uh, 
In the film, there was a completely gratuitous sex scene in the middle in an olive grove, after which Captain Crowley just disappears for a while. And, and I thought, he, he somehow missed the point of the book. Um, but but having said that, you know, the performances by John Hurt and, and David Morrissey were fantastically good. Um, I thought the soundtrack was magnificent, the one by Stephen Warbeck. The whole film would have been worth it for the soundtrack, to be honest. The, the cinematography was amazing. And... Uh, and I just was totally thrilled to meet Penelope Cruz and find out that she's as sweet in real life as she is on film. Oh, well, that's... So I, that's I, can't, I can't say the film was a total disappointment, <laughs> no. <laughs> and it's because it was a huge success and it's become a famous film, so mm. your bit of authorial needle, I suppose, has to, I, I has to in the end, be subsumed. I think there is, there's an awful problem with, it, with, with, with films if you are a writer, which is... And actually, if you are a reader, too. Which is, if, you, if you've written a book or read it, you've already made your own movie in your own mind. And you know what everybody looks like, what they sound like. You know the landscape, even though you've never been there, for example. And when you see the film, it's completely different from the movie you had made in your own head. That's why you feel uncomfortable. And, and I, w I would recommend to anybody, actually, to see the film first and then read the book. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, your play, The Dysfunctionals, a great hit at the Bush Theatre in London in 2007 and is currently at the Sovremennik Theatre in Moscow, um, translated into Russian, and now you are turning it into a film. Can you tell me about its transition from one language to another and from stage to screen? Wow. Uh, from one language to another is, um, well, I've just been there to, to watch the play in, in Russian. Um, the whole experience is completely different because Russian theatre is very, very different. They have seven months to rehearse, for instance, whereas you have four weeks at the bush. Um, the resources they have are enormous compared to the kind of resources you get at the bush. But also, theatre means something different. Um, in in theatre, in time and place, it, it when it all comes together, like it seems to have done in Moscow, it has a greater meaning. And at the moment, that play in Moscow seems to have a greater meaning within the whole context of their society. So that's been a wonderful experience. The experience of turning uh, a play into a screenplay has been interesting. Um, <laughs> but well, because You've written your own screenplay. I have now. <laughs> I, I have, I have. Ah, does that mean somebody else did it to start with? Well, or? no, I wouldn't let go of it was the problem. Um, and I don't know if how, how that's go, going to end. Hmm. Because initially, um, a lot of film companies were interested in buying it. And so I had meetings with you know, major players in the industry. And I was, you know, desperate for the money for a start um, and to get the film made. And then you meet people and uh, you think they can do what they want with it initially. And then when they start to tell you what they want to do with it, yeah. I found it absolutely impossible to, to yeah. let go. I could have got a massive deal on Red Dog by selling it to somebody who wanted to move the story to the USA. Uh, and I, I just couldn't do it. I said, I'm sorry, it's got to be in Australia. Yeah, th th this, is the, this is the thing. So my, my play was about a punk rock band who reformed to do an advert for an American credit card company. And the first question uh, that came at me from um, one of these Hollywood executives was, um, first of all, no swearing. You're allowed one swear word, which is the 
but you're allowed to say the F word once because they want it to be a 15 certificate, mm-hmm. which is, you know, there, there's... St- I'm, I'm not as bothered about that as a lot of people seem to be, although it is a punk rock band and they're <laughs> in their 50s and it is about that. But then they said, um, and can it be a new romantic band as opposed to a punk band? And once you get there, you're going, well, the thing is that <laughs> it's about being against consumerism and... Mm selling yourself and that's what punk was kind of about and so if you change it to new romantic and before you knew it 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 was going to be something entirely different so um so you know i had a few meetings like that and some people are honest aren't they and some people are dishonest um about what they want to do with it so you're lucky you didn't get asked for a car chase and an abduction by aliens i'm sure that was coming (laughs) i'm sure that was coming (laughs) you know that's that's the hilarity of it it's it's (laughs) It's that journey. Carl, you wrote a piece for the FT on literary adaptations recently. Why do you think they're so popular right now? Well, I think there's sort of two issues here. One is just pure happenstance. I mean, there are an awful lot of films coming out this year. And as you said, at the Oscars, you know, you've got The Descendants, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, The Help, Hugo, Moneyball and War Horse are all in contention for best film. Why there are so many at the moment? Well, a lot of those films have been in development for for years. And so I think there's just, you know, it's like buses. Several have come along at once for no good reason. But I think there is something sort of beyond that that is to do with our connection with stories as an audience and what it is that speaks to us, but also from the industry point of view, what it is that makes a good film. And... You know, if you're an investor or a producer, you're just basically looking for a really good story that that will make a good film and you don't care where it comes from, you know, and if it's a novel. So a proven success is important, is an important place to start. I think so. But I mean, as Stephen Doldry said to me, the number of people who've read most of these big literary novels could fill a restaurant. You know, that's not going to pay your £25 million budget for a film. So I think there's something beyond just purely... An, an initial audience of people who've read the book. I think there's something to do with sort of cultural currency. I think, uh, you know, a film like an incredibly loud, uh, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, um, which has sort of been panned actually by critics, had kind of literary cachet, and I think it was bought before it was actually published. And so, you know, the, there's a kind of a, a, an audience there that would just want to see the film but haven't read it. I think producers are like everyone else. If they read a good book, well, they're not like everyone else because not everyone else is a producer, but like everyone else, they they enjoy reading a book. And if, if they happen to read one which they think would make a good film, then they'll go for it. I imagine it's much harder to get um, a script to a producer because it's not something they're going to be doing for pleasure. That's work, isn't it? Whereas if, if they read a book on an aeroplane because they're having a long journey then they might think, oh, this will make a good film. Well, the number of stories you hear about producers in summer houses in the Hamptons or in Greece or wherever who happen to have picked up an old battered paperback of something exactly. and thought, oh, this will make a good film. You know, Yes, this Jane Austen, who is her agent. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, now, what about the economics of adaptations? I mean, do you think that it, it's actually easier to find investors for adaptations than it is for original scripts? I think at the moment it's difficult to find investors in in films in general and they say at the moment, um, in the British film industry anyway, that very few films are being made over a budget of three million, which is really, really small. So 
Um, and in fact, most films that are being made now in the last year or are projected to be made are like two million quid. So that's a whole new ball game of the way you're going to make a film. And that's why the new technology and uh, digital cameras and, and smaller crews and a different type of script is, is now possibly going to be the way forward in the next couple of years because the, the model for making money is kind of bust at the moment because DVD sales have disappeared and they haven't yet found a way to make money out of uh, live streaming and, and downloading from the internet. This must be why you weren't offered a car chase <laughs> and you couldn't afford it. Car chase, you're not... You're not you're, in fact, every, every time a big thing that, you, that is, in, is in a film at the moment, people are trying to get rid of... Um, so the question is, is the baby thrown out with the bathwater? We're, we're about to find out over the next few years. I think often that a low budget makes a better film. And when Captain Corelli's Mandolin was being filmed, they were simultaneously filming Bridget Jones's Diary, which was on a far, far lower budget, and it's probably a better film. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you that you're more likely to get a film that is... Um, from a kind of single voice or the voice of the, the actual people making the film... Mm on a small budget, the bigger the budget, the more input everybody has from um, from the first producer to the next producers to the people putting money in all the way down the line. I think that's exactly the point, that, that a low-budget low film is likely to be the product of one genius, mm. whereas a big-budget film has half a dozen producers who want different things from it. And it forces a kind of... Um forces you to address what the, the actual story is and, mm. and tell it sort of as clearly as possible rather than sort of throwing everything in because you can afford to. I, I guess key. you sort of, mm. you kind of have to think about what the story is mm. that you really want to tell. What um, what have been some of your favourite, I mean, all-time favourites of literary adaptations? We can go back a long way. Anna Karenina, for example, which was being done again in 2012 with mm. an adaptation by Tom Stoppard, I think. Yeah. Has it been done since the very old one? There was one in the 70s, Yeah, I think there? there's been about six or possibly seven adaptations. I think one of them was a Russian TV miniseries. Um, I mean, I guess the problem with Anna Karenina is that it's you know, sort of a 900-page novel that you have to boil down to 120 pages and of, of script. And so that really does force the, the screenwriter or the adapter to kind of try and work out what the core story is. And I think... So what Stoppard's doing is um, his his sort of thesis is that the book and his film will be about love. And so, um, I th as I understand it, everything that didn't fit that central thesis, he's just chucked out. Mm -hmm. And I think you do have to be kind of ruthless, but you do also have to kind of try and understand what the, the core story is. You can do sensible things to a story without ruining it. I mean, I, I've just written two versions of the script for Birds Without Wings, which is my next big novel. And... In that book, I had two characters going to different um, theatres of war. And the obvious thing to do to economise on effort was to have them both going off to the same theatre of war together. It didn't materially alter the story, but it would make the whole thing easier to do. You, you, can, you can come up with tricks like that. And was that something that was suggested to you by producers? Or yes, did you it was suggested up... to me by the producer, yes. Mm. But that, that you didn't mind. So this time you're doing your own script. Are you... Are you in finding that rewarding or difficult or it's very rewarding mm. I, I i love doing it but the, the thing that i've learned from it is is that novelists are very um uh, shall we say logocentric they they they're wordy what, what they like is words what what movie makers like is pictures 
So if, if you're a literary writer who's writing a script, you have to bear in mind all the time that it's something that's being seen as well as heard. Well, playwrights know that naturally, though, don't they? Because you, as a playwright, you have to do both things anyway, don't you? You have to have the, the, the visual image in your mind, presumably, when you're actually writing your play. You're making, as you say, you're making the movie, you're producing it in your mind. You do, but there's still a, a leap to um, making a screenplay. Um, and and it's and it's still a big leap. I don't, it's a different it's a different leap to to the leap from from novel to to screen. Um, and so you know, I've sat and watched hundreds and hundreds of films that have been made out of um, plays, and you see a pattern and you watch the pattern. But ultimately, you've you've kind of got to reinvent it in your mind as you're writing it, and kind of hopefully keep that central story and the central feeling and meaning um, and drive, but tell it in, 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 a, in, a, in a way that's visual. Yeah, for, for example, in a film, you will often have long panning shots of the landscape and maybe a little shot of an eagle above a mountain. You, you, you can't do that in a play. So the playwright has still got to, um, as you say, make a substantial leap. And a lot of things can be expressed in, in words on stage that sometimes you, need, you can do with a look mm. and you can do with... A picture of somebody alone, um, as opposed mm. to you know a soliloquy or something like that. There's lots of, there's there's just millions of d different things that you have to look at to change, and and it's very hard to keep the the thing, the the, the essence of the thing while you're doing that. Any particular favourite adaptations, Mike? Um, my favourite adaptation uh, probably is my favourite film, which is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Ah, yes, which is different to the book. But I think keeps the essence of what Ken Casey was um, about. Yeah, that's a great example, Louis. What would you? I can think have... of dozens of examples, but the one that always springs to mind when people ask this is Zorba the Greek. Oh, because the book hey, yes. the book is very largely a, a rather depressing um, account of somebody's difficult relationship with God. It's which you wouldn't really make a great film out of. But what the film did was was take this wonderful character Zorba and transfer the focus to him. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it might be the origin of my love, love affair with Greece, in fact, that film. <laughs> well, we have a lot to thank you. Yes, Zorba's responsible for a lot in all sorts of ways. I think. <laughs> That's a very good example, because um, I'm not sure I w was even aware that there was a book. I've certainly never read mm. it. And so also a good example of a film that's stronger than the book on which it was based, do you think? The film is much stronger on narrative the book is obviously much stronger on thoughtfulness. Carl, any favourites? <laughs> I don't know about favourites. I watched The Great Gatsby again the other day, the 1974 version, I think it is, with Robert Redford. Um, and that's quite interesting because it, it feels very 70s. It has this sort of slightly washed out, kind of almost like Vaseline on the lens kind of soft focus. And, it, you know, it's sort of gloriously sort of rich and, and sort of lavish and in some parts very true to the novel. Um, and, of course, the, Gats the Gatsby is, is being remade this year. So it'll be very interesting to see. I think it's Baz Luhrmann who's doing it, who obviously did Romeo and Juliet, which was a, a fabulous reworking of, of Shakespeare's play. And it'll be interesting to see what he then manages to do and whether he manages to make it sort of of our times. We've only got a minute left, but can you name any really bad ones, ones that you think Ooh, haven't yeah. worked? <laughs> I think there are hundreds, but... Um, <laughs> 
uh, I was asking my 10-year-old this morning, um, which was, uh, uh, I was saying, I've got to go in and maybe pick one that I really didn't like, and he said the cat in the hat, um, which apparently is appalling, but uh, I've not seen it myself, so that's his one. Any that you'd like to single out that, not that necessarily were bad films, but that just weren't successful as adaptations? The only one I can think of at the moment is Great Expectations, which obviously gets remade pretty much on an annual basis. <laughs> and it was with um, Gwyneth Paltrow and Ethan Hawke. And it was a real howler. I mean, dire. <laughs> mm. <laughs> well, on that note, <laughs> I wish you huge success with um, both your projects. Thank you so much for coming. And I'm afraid we're, we're out of time. Red Dog is out in the UK on the 24th of February. And a big thank you to Louis de Bernier, Mike Packer and Carl Wilkinson and to you all for listening. The Arts Podcast was produced by Griselda Murray-Brown. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.